Amen. Has anyone ever said these words to you, or have you said these words to someone else? You are being selfish. All you do is think about you. You know, the whole world you think revolves around you. Anybody ever said that to you? Or maybe you've said it to someone else. You're being selfish. All you do is think about you. You act like the whole world revolves around you. You know, at the core, we all struggle with selfishness. If you think about sin, all of sin is rooted in pride and selfishness. We want our way, the way we want it, when we want it. If you think about when you get mad at God, you often get mad at God in a selfish moment. Lord, why did you do that? Why didn't you answer my prayer request when I prayed? God, I would have done it differently. Lord, I'm mad at you because you didn't do this when I thought you should have. At the core, we all struggle with it. And here's what happens is when we try to be selfish, we think selfishness will bring us joy. We think selfishness will bring us happiness. And so the more we pursue ourselves, you're going to find that you find yourself more and more empty. The problem is that selfishness doesn't fill you up. What fills you up is being selfless. See, when you are selfless, then you're more like Christ. And the more we're like Christ and we find Christ in our lives, then we find that joy. Then we find that peace. Then we find that contentment we're looking for. But we find it not by being selfish, but being selfless. And so in this section of the letter that Paul is writing to the church of Corinth in chapters 8 through 10, we're, we're calling this section selfless because Paul is has a theme he's writing about, and this theme is giving up personal rights. It's making sacrifices in order to help someone else. And so last week we said that a selfless Christian makes personal sacrifices in order to help someone else grow in their faith, that there comes times where we need to give up some personal liberties and personal rights for the benefit of that other person. Well, now let's look this week at what Paul's going to teach us in 1 Corinthians chapter 9 on being a selfless Christian, and it's right there on the screen for you. A selfless Christian, well, I'll just say it, it'll get on the screen in a second maybe, so write it down as I say it, is a selfless, there it is, a selfless Christian makes personal sacrifices in order to win people for Jesus. And it'll stay up there for a second if you want to screenshot it or write it down. A selfless Christian makes personal sacrifices in order to win people for Jesus. And so that's the theme out of 1 Corinthians chapter 9. Paul's going to again say, as Christians, let's learn to lay down some rights and personal liberties at times in order to make personal sacrifices for the end goal of winning more people for Jesus. And so what does that selfless Christian looks like? Well, there's three qualities of them, and you're going to see them in chapter 9. The first quality is going to be this. A selfless Christian has a missional impulse. All right, a selfless Christian has a missional 
impulse. Let's look in verses one through two. Paul says, am I not free? Am I not an apostle? Have I not seen Jesus our Lord? Are not you my workmanship in the Lord? If to others I'm not an apostle, at, at least I am to you, for you are the seal of my apostleship in the Lord. Now, Paul uses that word apostle a couple of times, so let's just define it out very quickly. An apostle was one who, number one, had to witness the resurrected Jesus Christ, so you would have had to seen Jesus post-resurrection, had an encounter with him. We know that was Paul on the road to Damascus where he met Christ and received Jesus as his Savior. Also, an apostle was one who was sent, and that's what it means. They sent one. He was sent to preach the gospel. All right, so by that definition, there are no apostles today, but Paul here says, I'm an apostle. And why he's starting out this chapter that way is because this apostleship is really under attack that there were people in Corinth who were saying, whoa, 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 Paul is not really an apostle. That Paul is just a a hired hand, a hired gun. And and just contextually here in this culture, what was happening is is you would have traveling speakers, traveling orators. And, And they would go around town to town. These would be professional speakers. And they would go into towns and they would speak. Well, it was often the wealthy people that paid them to come and speak. And the wealthy would say, hey, you, you come on over and stay with me while you're in town. And what would happen is while they're housing them or paying them, they'd sit down with that speaker and say, you know, before you, you talk tomorrow, I just, just want to remind you, um, who's paying your check? Yeah. I just want to remind you, whose house you're living in? So while you're up there, um, I need you to promote me a little bit more. Hey, while you're up there, I've been working with the city and I want to get another Chick-fil-A built on the other side of town, I need you to push that agenda. Hey, you know what? There's this other person. He's on city council. I want him off. I need you to say these things. So see, the speakers that would come in town, and they're speaking, it's the people that are paying them that are pulling the strings. The speaker's more of the puppet. And so Paul, in this opening section, is saying, listen, whoa, 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 hang on one second. You guys, I need to remind you something. I'm not taking a dime for this gig. I'm here under my own free will. We read in the book of Acts that Paul was a tent maker. That's how he made his living. And he says, I'm not getting paid anything. Nobody's pulling my strings. I'm not a puppet. I'm not getting paid to preach the gospel. Now, let's ask this uncomfortable question since Paul raised it, shall we? Should you pay staff on a church should pastors get paid because there are some christians who walk around say hey i don't think a pastor should get paid we shouldn't pay a pastor or any staff member anything so what do we what do we do because we look here and paul's saying i don't get paid for doing this well let me first say this that number one as a church that's a local church decision so you as a church body You can make the decision not to pay any staff here and to run our church purely on volunteers. Okay, you have that right. The next time we have a business meeting, you can make a motion from the floor and just stand up and say, hey, I want a motion. We don't pay anybody here. And we do everything by volunteers. 
that, that's your right. You can do that. That's a local church decision on whether or not you pay a pastor. Well, understand this. It's in my right as a pastor to also be paid, right? I mean, it's my right to be paid. And so Paul shows you, though, he gives you two examples of this, and he first gives you a natural example. I want you to notice in verse 7, he says, who serves as a soldier at his own expense? Verse 7, he says, who plants a vineyard without eating of its fruit? Who tends a flock without getting some of his milk? All right, so he gives you a natural example. A, a soldier fights in the army and gets paid. Uh, you know, you God plants his tomato plants, he eats some of the tomatoes. He's out there milking the cows, he gets thirsty, takes a gulp, right? It's a natural example. But then he also gives you a scriptural example. Drop down to verse 13. He says, do you not know that those who are employed in the temple service get their food from the temple? So what he's doing is he's drawing off the Old Testament example there. He says, do you not know that those who are employed in the temple service get their food from the temple? And those who serve at the altar shall share in their sacrificial offerings? They say, hey guys, remember, well, in the Old Testament, we, we paid these guys. Here's, here's what we did for them. So, so it's okay to pay your pastors, right? You as a church, you can decide not to, but also it's okay to do it. But here's what Paul's saying, and here's what I don't want you to miss. And you're probably thinking, well, what, what's this about having a missional impulse as a selfless Christian. Here's the impulse. Paul's saying, whether I get paid or I don't get paid, I got to preach the gospel. That's my impulse. That's my heart. I'm under the compulsion, whether I draw a check or I don't draw a check, to preach the gospel. I want you to notice verses 15 and 16. But he says, but I've made no use of any of these rights, nor am I writing these things to secure any such provision. So he's saying, listen, remember, I don't get paid. For I'd rather die than to have anyone deprive me of my ground for boasting. But notice verse 16, because verse 16 is going to drop in all of our laps here. For if I preach the gospel, it gives me no ground for boasting. For necessity is laid upon me, and woe to me if I do not preach the gospel. See, a selfless Christian makes personal sacrifices to win more people for Jesus. And so that quality that we all ought to have is that. Woe to me if I don't preach the gospel. That's the impulse we all should carry. That was the impulse of Jesus. Very first message Jesus preached publicly, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. That's the impulse of Paul. I have to share this message. The impulse of Peter, I have to share this message. The impulse of your New Testament writers, I have to do this. The Lord has put me under compulsion. I'm implored to do this. This is my impulse, my heartbeat as a Christian. And woe to me as a believer in Jesus Christ if I never share the good news I say I know. You know, over 90% of Christians will never once share the good news of Jesus Christ with someone personally. 90% research shows will never sit down and share that simple message with Jesus, uh, about Jesus. Now you might think, I don't, I don't know how to share. If you know enough of the gospel to be saved, you know enough of the gospel to share. Paul's saying, that's my impulse. A selfless Christian has that impulse to share the gospel. But notice the second quality. A selfless Christian 
has a strategy, a missional strategy. We have that missional impulse about us. That's our heartbeat getting the gospel out. But we have a missional strategy in what we do. I want you to pick up in verse 19 with me. Paul says there, For though I am free from all, I have made myself a servant to all, that I might win more of them. To the Jews I became as a Jew in order to win Jews. To those under the law I became as one under the law, though not being myself under the law, that I might win those under the law. Verse 21, to those outside the law I became as one outside the law, not being outside the law of God, but under the law of Christ, that I might win those outside the law. Verse 22, to the weak I became weak that I might win the weak. I become all things to all people that by all means I might save some. I do it all for the sake of the gospel that I may share with them in its blessings. You see a missional strategy here by Paul. Do you notice that there is a term win used a lot in that section? No, your translation may say gain, win, gain. It's the same type term. But Paul used it five times in those verses that I'm out to win people for Christ, or I'm out to gain people for Christ. And that means I'm I'm out to win a non-believer to Jesus, or maybe I'm also out to gain a brother or sister back in Christ who's gone wayward, who's kind of backslidden. And I want to win them back to Jesus. And Paul identified four groups. Did you notice the groups? He said, first group is this, to the Jews, that's self-explanatory. He said, for those that are under the law, those under the law, he's going to talk about there are probably Gentile, Gentiles who are adopting Judaism, who are trying to worship God through the Jewish rituals. Those are going to be those under the law. They haven't placed their faith and trust in Jesus yet. Those outside of the law, those are going to be people who aren't saved. They don't trust that Jesus Christ is the personal Lord and Savior of their lives. And then he says to the weak, And I'm trying to win the weak. Now, the weak could also mean those that have yet to trust their faith in Jesus. But the weak could also be, if we put that term weak in its context within these three chapters, being those that have gone wayward, being the Christian that's backslidden. Say, I'm I'm out to win them back. And so he's got these four groups he's focusing on. The Jews, those under the law, those outside law to the weak. He says, I'm trying to win them to Christ. And and here's the strategy. I want you to pick it up with me in the end of verse 22. He says that I might win the weak, and I become all things to all people, that by all means I might save some. All right, I I become all things to all people. That's his strategy. Now I want you to understand what this is not. This is not compromising his morals. This is not compromising his biblical convictions when he's saying, I'm becoming to the Jew a Jew, to those who are outside the law, to those outside the law, to those under the law, under the law, to the weak, I became weak. This is not compromising morals. This is not compromising his biblical convictions. This is not compromising his purity. This is not compromising the message of the cross. That is not what Paul's after when he's saying, to you, I become you. So it's not an ethic of, to the thief, I become a thief. To the adulterer, I become an adulterer. What he's doing is simply this, and it's a practice that we all do. It's what's called contextualization. 
you constantly in delivering messages to people in your lives contextualize that message. Contextualization is real easy to understand, but sometimes a little hard to apply. Contextualization is simply this. If you're telling uh, your five-year-old grandchild or grandson how to do something, you're going to communicate those instructions at a level that person can understand. You know, many of you are teachers or you retire teachers, you understand this beautifully. If you're teaching an eighth grade math class, you're going to use the terms and teach the eighth grade math class like you, the eighth graders are going to stand it. You're not going to teach them like they're seniors, you're going to teach them like they're eighth graders. You do this as life group teachers every Sunday. If you're a life group teacher, you contextualize the message. You're sitting there thinking about who is in your room and how you can explain it in such a way that they understand it. You know, this morning I I did my prayer walk, and I I usually on Saturday nights or Sunday mornings kind of just walk around campus, and I, I pray for every building as I'm moving around, praying for the activities in every building, praying for you as life group teachers every week, praying for you that are in life groups here in the worship center. And what I pray every week is contextualization. Lord, those that are teaching the Bible this morning, help them teach it in a way that's understandable. Help the people who are hearing, hear the word, accept the word, believe the word, live the word. And I just pray that all throughout our campus, either Saturday nights or Sunday morning, as I'm walking around, just going building by building, I'm envisioning many of you in those rooms. We always contextualize. You know, I had a preacher and professor once say this. He said, in preaching, you have to learn not to put the cookies so high on the shelf that no one can reach them, right? That's contextualization. So what it means this way in a strategy for a church is how do we connect to the people that are within our communities in order to win an audience to share the gospel, right? That's what Paul's saying. To this person, I become this. To this person, I become this. To this person, I become this. I'm learning to connect with them where they are in order to build a relationship with them. Kind of think about it this way. Build a bridge in order to share the gospel with them. That's the missional strategy. But in order to do that strategy, we have to be selfless Christians. That means this. I believe right now every church has an opportunity. And every church, including ours, is standing at a fork in the road. We are coming out of this pandemic, still in this pandemic, really confused where we are on those terms sometimes, right? Am I the only one that sometimes scratches their head and goes, huh? Right? But we have come out or we're coming out of a a time that has culturally changed all of us. Have you started talking in terms where it's COVID has marked you? You know, remember before COVID this? Remember before COVID that? All of us have generational markers within our lives. Pearl Harbor, right? Assassination of Kennedy. World Trade Center. COVID, right? We all share those things. And I believe right now, every church is standing at a crossroads. Which way do we go missionally? Do we go back? Do do we go 
back to 2018, back to 2017, back to 2019, where we as a church say, all right, hey, things are kind of calming down and getting back to normal or whatever that even means. Let's just go back to doing everything we once did the way we did it. So, so you could take that route or you can take the route to say, well, hang on one second. God, God's really providing, I think, every Christian, every church, a, a pause moment here. And maybe we need to step back and look at the culture and the community around us and who's in it and who's changed and how do we now in this new reality in which we're in, how do we connect to them? How do we reach them? How do we go forward not back. And so here's the reason why that's so important. 65 to 80%, depending on who you read, 65 to 80% of churches, all churches in the United States are plateaued or declining. Let that sink in for a moment. The average church size in America is 85 people. As the Southern Baptist Convention, we have 47,000 churches of Southern Baptist churches around the United States. 90% of Southern Baptist churches run fewer than 200 on a Sunday morning. You realize that our church is in the top 10% of 47,000 churches in the Southern Baptist Convention. You know what every empty seat should remind us of every Sunday morning? Is there is another person to win to Christ to fill that seat. Every seat should remind us of that. And so here's what I encourage you to do. Here's what I ask you to do. If you're on the path of, hey, let's just go back and let's just go back and let's just go back to what we know and, and how to do it and where we were comfortable, I want to ask you to see the detour sign God has put up. And I want to ask you to detour with me to this other road. And this morning, I want to ask you to join me in praying, God, where do you want us to go? God, how do we connect to the people you're bringing around us? God, how do we connect in a world that's radically changed in, in what they believe and how they receive information and get information? God, how do we do that? I want to ask you this morning to join me in praying that prayer. God, help us to be selfless Christians that have this missional impulse to share the gospel, but a missional strategy to learn how to connect to the people around us. But that's going to take something else this morning. It's going to take missional focus. Focus. We have to be focused. This morning, verses 24 through 27, Paul says this. He says, do you not know that in a race, all the runners run, but only one receives the prize? So run that you may obtain it. Every athlete exercises self-control in all things. They do it to receive a perishable wreath, but an imperishable. But we an imperishable, excuse me. Verse 26, he says, I do not run aimlessly. I do not box as one beating the air, but I discipline my body and keep it under control, lest after preaching to others, I myself should be disqualified. You see a missional focus. And here's one of the reasons I love the Bible is because it has sports in it. Isn't that cool? I love the Bible. You see sports all through the Bible. We didn't invent sports. You know, archaeology shows us by the time of Abraham, they were already playing organized sports. In the Roman Empire, they loved sports so much. In a 365-day calendar, 155 days were given off 
for sports. Isn't that cool? When you love a job like that to be in that kind of country, hey, out of 365 days, we're going to give you 155 days off to enjoy sports. Woohoo! You see boxing, wrestling, running in the Bible. I love it because there's sports there. As men and women, we should sit up and say, we get it. There's sports. Yay. And Paul says there's a missional focus we have to have. This is a culture that loved their sports. There was two main sporting events at this time. There were Olympic Games in the Greeks, and there was also called the Isthmian Games. Now, the Isthmian Games were hosted by Corinth every two years. So, help us out, Summer Summer Olympics, Winter Olympics, okay? All right, so this was a major sporting event. But these athletes that were going to compete in these games had to swear an oath For 10 months, they would rigorously train. They would train every day. They would change their diets. For 10 months, they committed to compete in these games under strict training regimens. If they violated that training, they violated the oath, they're out. They don't get to compete. They don't get to run that race or whatever, you know, thing they entered into. Badminton, I don't think, was around by then, but, you know. Whatever they said, I'm going to run in, they were out. They couldn't do it. They violated the oath. They lost focus. And Paul says this, all those people, and we just saw the Olympics, and you're going to get this because the Olympics timed it out well for us on this illustration. All those events you watched, all those athletes that competed, they did not train. They did not come just to participate. They came to win a medal. They wanted to win. They wanted to be the best in the world. And Paul says right there in this text, listen, under this metaphor, they're trying to win something that's going to fade away. They're going to win something that is perishable. But as believers in Jesus Christ, using this metaphor in our lives, we are running for something that is imperishable. That's heaven. That's our gift. That's our reward. And we cross over that earthly finish line. We're in heaven with Jesus forever. Now, Paul is not saying that we run in order to receive. We're not running in order to obtain. We're not running in order to earn our salvation. But because of our salvation in Jesus Christ, we run. And we run, and we run a focused race. That means every uppercut counts. Every time we run, it counts. Everything we do counts. And what he's getting at is this, to have such a focus and a discipline in our Christian lives, we're effective. We want to be effective in sharing the gospel. We want to be effective in living for Jesus. That's why he says in verse 25, we exercise self-control. Verse 26, he says, we don't run aimlessly. In verse 27, he says, we discipline our bodies. We keep it under control. Notice this. Lest after preaching to others, I myself should be disqualified. The term disqualified there means not approved. And what it's going to point you to is this, not a loss of salvation. Once you've been born again by the blood of Christ, you're not unborn. Romans 8 says that if you belong to the Lord, there's nothing that takes you out of the hand of God. 
If you're a believer in Jesus Christ today and you trust in Christ and by faith and faith alone, then you're a believer in Christ tomorrow and you're a believer in Christ through all out of eternity. Doesn't mean you lose salvation. But what Paul's pointing us to in our Christian lives, we can be disqualified, not approved. Jesus says it this way, you're the salt of the earth, but salt can lose its saltiness. And when you've lost the saltiness, then you're no longer effective for the kingdom. And he says, you want to be effective. Therefore, we are focused in having this missional impulse to share the gospel, this missional strategy to connect to people. We're running this missional race focused, bringing people into the kingdom. Last week, Safin Hassad, who was running for the Netherlands, um, was running in a, one of the pre-qualifying races. It was a 1,500-meter race. And go, go home and watch it on YouTube. It's just amazing what this young lady did. But she was the favorite gold medalist for the Netherlands in this 1,500-meter race. And it was one of those early races you got to run in order to qualify to get into the medal race, right? And so her strategy, always in races, is to start in the back. And she starts in the back. Now, she's one of the best runners in the world. And so as the race starts, she's in the back. She's last. Nobody's panicking. The commentators are actually saying, hey, this is part of her strategy. This is what she does. She always runs in the back. And then about halfway through, she kicks it in another gear. And by the end of the race, she's out in front. Well, you know, about the halfway point, something happened in that race to Safine. The young lady in front of her tripped and she fell. And it tripped up Safine and she fell. And when she fell and hit the tracks, the commentators were like, oh no, she's down. And that's what the other runners did. They didn't stop. They kept running. But guess what Safine did? And it's amazing when you see the clip. Just as soon as she hit the track, she bounced back up. And the rest of that race, she did what she always did. She kicked in another gear. And by the end of the race, she finished first. Isn't that amazing? I think, wow, you could have stayed down. You could have given up. You could have felt sorry for yourself. You could have laid there on the track and said, well, that's it. My gold medal's done. But as soon as she hit, she bounced up and took off and took over the race. I wonder how many of you this morning are tired. You're discouraged. You're laying there on the track because sin tripped you up again this week. And you feel ineffective. Maybe you're like the boxer it's late in the match and you're up against the ropes and you've taken all of the body blows sins can give you and your legs are starting to wobble and the knees are starting to buckle and you just think, if I get hit on the chin one more time by an uppercut, I'm done. And this morning you're sitting there wondering, I don't know if I can run. I, I don't know if I can keep going. I really don't know. I, I'm tired. I'm discouraged. Tired of seeing the things around me happen? Maybe it is you've shared the gospel with some people and you're like, man, I, I'm not seeing them come to know Christ. I'm ready to give up. Maybe there's a medical reason right now you're just falling into depression. And here's what I want you to do. I want you to do this for me this week. I'm going to give you a little bit of homework. Every time this week you hit that track because you've tripped. Every time this week sin hits you with another body blow and discouragement. 
and you feel like you're up against the ropes and, and, and the match is almost done, you just don't know if you can take it anymore, here's what I want you to do. I want you to remember Hebrews chapter 12 and verses 1 through 2. The writer of Hebrews in chapter 12 verses 1 through 2 says this, Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a clouds of witnesses, let us lay aside every weight and the sin which clings so closely, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Will you do that this week? And you get down, you get discouraged, you wonder if you can keep going. Would you put Hebrews chapter 12, verses 1 through 2 in mind? Would you look to Jesus? Would you look to Jesus and say, Jesus, you are the founder, the perfecter, the author of my faith. You're the one who died on the cross for my sin. You're the one who conquered death by coming out of that grave. You're the one that's given me eternal life. And Jesus, help me to lay aside the discouragement. Help me to lay aside the depression. Help me to lay aside the sin. And Jesus, help me to run. Help me to run. And, and help me to remember there are men and women who've gone before me that are there in heaven almost cheering me now that I can look to to say, I want to finish my race well for you, Jesus. I want to invite you right now where you are to bow your head and just close your eyes. And let's, let's talk to the Lord together for a moment. Just in prayer, right where you are, a selfless Christian is willing to make personal sacrifices to win more people for Jesus. Would you ask God right now to put in your mind and your heart, what is the sacrifice you need to make? Ask God, Lord, what, what's the sacrifice I, I need to make in my own personal life? Maybe it's the sacrifice of giving. It's tithing. You're not giving right now. And you know, when you give, God uses that. And giving helps people come to know Jesus. We saw boys and girls through Vacation Bible School pray to receive Christ. You gave for us to be able to do that. We have missionaries all around our world that you support through giving. Maybe this morning it's that personal sacrifice of giving. Maybe today it's a personal sacrifice of sharing the gospel. You have someone in your mind that's a husband, a wife, a brother, a sister, a, an extended family member, a coworker, a friend, a neighbor, and you need to sacrifice being uncomfortable. And just saying, oh Lord, I, I have this battle of being comfortable and Lord, help me to sacrifice that comfortability and let me be uncomfortable sometimes and let me step out and share. Maybe that's the sacrifice. Maybe it's the sacrifice of serving. You have been served, but you are not serving anyone. How can you make that personal sacrifice today of serving a coworker, taking a meal to somebody who's sick, serving in a ministry here at our church, serving in the community somewhere? She asked God, God, what's the personal sacrifice you want me to make to help more people come to know Christ? 
Father in heaven, I pray today that our faith is in Christ and in Christ alone. For he is our strength. He is our hope. Lord, and we can be firm in Christ because of what Christ has done for us through his death, burial, and resurrection. And so, Lord, I pray today for those that are worshiping at home. Right now, they're praying, what's the personal sacrifice I can make to win someone else for Christ? As those here in this worship service are praying that, Lord, I pray that our faith is in Christ and Christ alone. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.